Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. So this is our second week now in our On the Way to the Cross series, uh, which is intended to help prepare us for Holy Week coming up in about three weeks, uh, Good Friday and Easter. And this morning's story comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, starting in verse 20, Matthew 20, 20. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to make your way there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for being able to worship together, for the beautiful music uh, that the worship team led us in. Lord, we pray uh, that you would inhabit the praises of your people this morning, that we would sense your spirit moving among us and in us. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to attend to the scriptures now, that your spirit would speak to our hearts and our minds. Bring us into a fuller understanding of who you are and transform us more into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just like last week, two disciples are featured in this story James and John. If you were here last week, you may remember that James and John were two of the three disciples that got to go up on the mountain and witness the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter was the third one. And James and John were the two disciples who shortly after that asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and burn up the Samaritans because they weren't hospitable to you? And Jesus, of course, rebuked them for that. So James and John are going to get featured again. So let's talk a little bit about James and John. Who were these guys? James and John were actually brothers. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee, who was a Galilean fisherman. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus gave them a nickname, which I think is kind of neat that Jesus gave a nickname to somebody, uh, which was Sons of Thunder, which means something like guys of commotion, troublemakers, knuckleheads, You know, a couple of guys with more zeal than wisdom. And we can see why Jesus would give them that nickname in that passage from last week, right? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Jesus probably said something like, Oh, you sons of thunder, you knuckleheads. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. So once again, the sons of thunder are going to cause a little bit of commotion. So Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What? What is... I can really throw my voice. Well, so, yeah. uh, what is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can't, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John's mother comes to Jesus to ask for a favor. She asks that her boys, her sons of thunder, might sit at Jesus' left and right in his coming kingdom, meaning that they might have the second and third highest places of power in the coming Jesus administration. Now, interestingly, Mark's account of this story doesn't include the mother at all. It just says that James and John asked, which tells us that this was really James and John's idea. They just got mommy to ask for them, right? And Jesus seems to recognize this because as soon as uh, mom asks the question, he starts talking directly to James and John, right? He says, you don't know what you're asking, he said to them, not just to mom, but to them. So this wasn't just mom's idea. It was mainly... Uh, James and John's, but mom did want this for her boys, right? Because she assumed, as her sons did, that in a short while, Jesus would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish an everlasting kingdom here on earth, which all the nations would come and honor forever and ever. Her boys had left her husband's fishing business, made that sacrifice, and she wanted that sacrifice to pay off. And what greater payoff could there be than sitting at the right and the left of the the Messiah as he reigns in his kingdom? But as Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. They think they're asking for positions of power and privilege and respect, positions of comfort and leisure. But what James and John and their mother don't realize is that Jesus is not going to bring the kingdom by miraculously overthrowing Rome. He's not going to do it by amassing armies to overthrow sinners and pagans. The way he's going to bring the kingdom is by dying a sacrificial death on a cross. It won't be by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. And when he brings his kingdom, the people on his right and his left will not be sitting in comfort and privilege. As Matthew tells us a few chapters later, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. What James and John have asked for, even though they don't realize it, is crucifixion. They've asked to die for their enemies. They've asked to suffer with Jesus. They've asked for rejection and humiliation. So this is why Jesus asks, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This is an idiomatic way of saying, can you endure the suffering that I'm about to endure? 
Now, the sons of thunder, they say, without hesitation, we can. Now, did they realize what they were actually agreeing to? Did they realize that they were agreeing to dying on a cross? Is that what they thought Jesus meant when he said drinking the cup? I'm not sure. They might have just thought Jesus was saying, can you participate in this political uprising? Or are you willing to follow an itinerant rabbi around for another few years with no place to lay your head? Whatever the case, whether it was out of zeal or naivete, the sons of thunder are quick to say, yeah, we can do that. Meaning, we can do whatever is necessary to have the second and third positions in your kingdom to be in those positions of honor and glory and power. And Jesus responds in an interesting way. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think Jesus is being a little clever here, as he often is, and I think he has a double meaning. So on the one hand, I think he is saying that James and John, like him, are going to suffer for their faithfulness to God. And church tradition tells us that that did happen, that 10 to 15 years after this, James was beheaded as a martyr for his witness to the gospel. John, interestingly, he was the one disciple that tradition says did not die a martyr's death. Uh, he lived to be very old and died naturally. But he did suffer a lot of persecution in his life, including exile. And if the rumors of tradition are to believe, he was even uh, asked to drink poison or something at some point, um, but managed to survive. So he definitely faced suffering. There was a cup of suffering that he had to endure. But James and John were going to share in Jesus' cup in another way, too. Later in Matthew's Gospel, of course, we read about Jesus' last supper before his crucifixion with his disciples. And there, Jesus holds up the cup of wine, which we recall every week here, and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So James and John will indeed drink Jesus' cup because in the future they will celebrate, you know, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. They will do that with other believers. They will remember Jesus' sacrifice in the way that he instituted that we would remember it, right? But not only will they observe that act of, of remembrance, but they will also receive and experience everything that that act of remembrance represents, right? They will experience the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus' sacrifice. So Jesus is recognizing that the cup of suffering that he is going to drink, metaphorically speaking, that cup of suffering will create a cup of life for James and John and all of us. His blood shed on the cross will bridge the distance between God and humanity and defeat the power of sin and death, and they will indeed share in that cup. So he goes from speaking about the cup of suffering that he has to drink to the cup of life that his suffering will create. This reminds me of a, a line from a poet named George Herbert. 
Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. So, verse 24 says that the other ten disciples were not happy when they heard about this. Because James and John aren't the only ones who want top positions in the Jesus administration. And so they're indignant at the Sons of Thunder for trying to call dibs. How dare they? And their anger reveals that they still haven't realized how things work in the kingdom of God. They still think that being first in the kingdom means having power and prestige. So they want these high appointments, right? They, you might say they're competing for the ring of power, right? They are grasping for it, lusting after it. So Jesus has to remind them that his kingdom isn't going to work the way that most earthly kingdoms do. He says, Gentile rulers lord it over their people. They're domineering. And one way of putting it is they rule in such a way where they expect the people to serve them. But not so with you. In the kingdom of God... Those who have the greatest authority are the ones who serve. If you really want a high position in God's kingdom, you shouldn't expect to be served, but to serve. If you want a high position in the kingdom, you shouldn't expect leisure, but responsibility. Now, I don't think that most of us here today are thinking that much about you know, wanting to occupy these special positions of power when Jesus returns again. I mean, maybe that's something that's on your mind, but I doubt that's really at the forefront of your daily life, wanting that, worrying about that, right? But like the disciples, we can have a similar longing for power and glory. And it can show up in our concern for what we call success which so often has to do with money, possessions, notoriety, awards. It can even show up in our desire for like a social media, media following or uh, hearts and likes and retweets uh, on the things that we post. How do you define a truly successful life? It's something to think about. As you think of your future, however much time you have left that God will give you, what what needs to happen in that time in order for you to feel good about the life that you've lived? Some people, they might not even be conscious of it, but they're making assumptions about what success looks like, and those assumptions are leaving them perpetually frustrated and disappointed. Maybe, could be unconsciously, they're associating success with making it into that top 20% income bracket, or with owning a luxury sports car, or managing to gain the respect and admiration of an audience in some way. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they're not true success, at least not by Jesus' standards. And here's one way you can tell that, 
okay? When a stranger drives by in an extravagant car, do you think, that's a man of character, I bet. No, I, I bet that's a guy who consistently demonstrates love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You don't think that, right? You don't think that, not because the man doesn't have those qualities. You just can't tell by looking at his car, right? You have no idea. At best, the car has no bearing on his character. And at worst, it's a sign of materialism, which is bad, right? But that car is considered by many a sign of success. Not only do we tend to de define success by things like wealth and possessions, we human beings also have this very strange tendency to define success as getting what we think other people want. Uh, this is what anthropologists call mimetic desire. Have any of you guys heard of this? Mimetic desire. You think you want something, but you really want it because you think other people want it. And we see this clearly in children, right? Where, say, uh, a kid go, goes into a nursery and passes by a whole bunch of toys, completely disinterested, and then turns around a few minutes later and sees another kid playing with one of those toys that they didn't care about. Well, now they have to have that toy, right? And now there's a fight over that toy. And they might start crying to the nursery worker, I want to turn with that toy. That's mimetic desire. I want it because I know you want it. And now all of a sudden, I desire it because of that. And children actually aren't the only ones who do that. <laughs> it's just more obvious. We retain that. You know, think about it. Why is it that you can tell what decade it is when you look at a picture just by what people are wearing? Why do we all just collectively change our minds about what looks good every few years? It has something to do with the fact that we are perceiving our perception changes of what we think other people want. And there are certain people who are influential who kind of start the trend and then we imitate it, right? Mimetic desire. Anyway, the point I'm making is that we have a tendency to define success in bad ways, unhealthy ways, by possessions, by income, nice cars, power over others, and by possessing what we think other people want. But Jesus' definition of a truly great person, and therefore a truly successful person, is somebody who serves. It's somebody who's able to get out of their own head and actually truly attend to other people. This kind of person is not controlled by mimetic desire, they're not controlled by the pursuit of power and glory, but they are genuinely concerned about the needs of others around them. This is the kind of person who is not ruled by their ego. right? As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who are not ruled by their ego. That is the kind of person who's actually able to love. 
That's the kind of person who is truly great. So is our definition of greatness the same as Jesus's? There is greatness in parents who pour out their lives, their time, their energy for their children. And there is greatness in adult children who pour out their time, their energy, their love for their aging parents. True greatness can look very mundane by the world's standards. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine passed away. I knew him from the church that I grew up in. Uh, He had volunteered for years in ministries there, with the youth ministry, with the uh, young adult ministry. He was much too young to die. He was only in his early 50s. Uh, He had, had a stroke a few years ago and never fully recovered, had complications for the rest of his life from that. And I was thinking about him. Was he wealthy? No. Not anywhere close. Uh, Was he married? He actually never got married. Did he ever have kids? Nope. Never had kids. Did he have some kind of great career? No. But his memorial service was packed with people who would miss him and loved him. And his life had clearly enriched theirs. And I think his memorial service was packed because he was the kind of person who demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to hold him up as some perfect saint. (laughs) He was a flawed person, as we all are. But people who knew him, including myself, felt seen by him, heard by him, valued by him. He was humble. He was able to laugh at himself. He knew how to speak words of encouragement when you were having a hard time. And everyone seemed to have a story about how he had made them laugh, how he had brought joy to their lives. By the standards of the kingdom, there was greatness in him. Jesus tells the disciples that their understanding of greatness should change because he should be their standard of greatness. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, arrived, he did not demand a palace and the finest amenities of the time. Uh, He did not seek to silence and kill his enemies. He did not seek honor and prestige. He wasn't, you know, gunning for the Rabbi of the Year award. He wasn't trying to win an election. He sought to serve lost and fallen humanity. Even if that meant being accused of what he was not guilty of. Even if it meant having to suffer and die the most dishonorable, shameful death society had devised. He was willing to do that. Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom. 
A ransom is a payment that is made to buy somebody out of slavery or captivity. Jesus recognized that our condition as humans is a kind of imprisonment, a kind of captivity. And the bars that keep us trapped are the powers of sin and death. And his entire life was like a ransom payment to free us from that cage, to remove those bars. So this is what true greatness looks like. Not grasping for power and prestige, but giving of oneself for the sake of others. Loving sacrificially. Are we sons and daughters of thunder? Like James and John? Hungry for worldly prestige and power? Or are we sons and daughters of Jesus? People who want to serve. I'll finish with this. You know, it occurred to me that the Bible shows us how much Jesus changed John's perspective. Because at first he's a son of thunder, but later he gains the reputation of being the apostle of love. At first he's the one who wants to call down fire from heaven and kill their enemies. At first, he's vying for the place of power and privilege in the kingdom. But by the end of his life, he is known as the apostle of love. Because when he writes the Gospel of John and the epistle uh, known as 1 John, he emphasizes love like more than anybody else. The son of thunder is the one who at the end of his life wrote things like this. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Or how about this one? Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. He came to serve, not to be served to give his life as a ransom. So he's changed, hasn't he, by the end of his life. He's not the do you want us to call down fire from heaven guy anymore. Jesus has set him free. Because of the ransom Jesus paid, the gift of his life, John was set free. And Jesus can set us free too. Lord, Uh, We do pray that, like John, we would experience um, that freedom from the power of sin and death that ushers us into a life of service and love. Transform our ideas of what true success is. Help us to see success and greatness the way that you do, in a way that mimics Jesus. And Lord, even if there's, there's unconscious Uh, forces at work that are affecting the way we see true success, Lord. Root those out of of our heart and mind and help us to see things the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen.